Please open to the first book of the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Matthew, to chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. Am I close enough to the mic? I have a bad habit of fading and trailing off, so if you do need me to speak up, go like this. It helps me. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. This is probably a portion of scripture you're at least generally familiar with, if not very familiar with it. What we're doing today is stepping into the very middle, essentially, of what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is, in Matthew's accounting, the last extended section of teaching as Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the purpose of giving himself over to become a ransom for many. It's called the Olivet Discourse very simply because of the location where Jesus is speaking. They're on the Mount of Olives, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, I'm told, I understand rather from what I read, that they can look down upon the temple particularly, etc. And that has bearing and significance on early portions of the Olivet Discourse. But just to summarize and orient us to this text today, the basic subject of this whole discourse is things of the future, And what Jesus has moved towards now, what he's focusing on, is his second coming. That's what we refer to, the second coming, which will bring in the end of all things and the consummation and glory. And this second coming, Jesus has taught at least two things, and I put it under the heading of the word immediately. I pull that word from just a bit earlier in the discourse here. Jesus has just finished teaching, though briefly, his coming will be his second coming will be immediate in the sense that one it can happen at any moment do you believe that at any moment Jesus second coming can appear and secondly when Jesus says it'll be immediate it means that it'll happen suddenly all of a sudden the end will come as Jesus comes again and now what Jesus is doing this is where we're stepping in he's transitioning from just explaining that reality to applying it That's my simplification of where we are. And basically, Jesus is telling us how to be ready for that second coming. Um, Because we are jumping in the middle, and even though I've done some explanation, I want to begin the reading back just a few steps, starting back in verse 36. So that'll be the reading for today. The preaching will, of course, focus on the latter portion. But starting in verse 36, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then here's the text proper that I'm preaching to you. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed 
and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus ends this reading of the scriptures, which the Apostle Paul told us is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray that the Lord would accomplish these purposes in us by the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the gift of Sabbath, and that we have rest held out before us in Christ, and that we have the glorious privilege of enjoying that rest, a foretaste of it now. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. And by this word, you reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, Lord, you tell us that you use this word to equip us. So please, Holy Spirit, use this word to prepare us for the coming of Jesus, that we might be found ready. We might look forward to that day as a day of all blessings being consummated. Ultimately, we look to you, Lord Jesus, to feed us. So take these broken efforts, break them, bless them, and may all of us here be nourished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I believe this text serves as a good one-time sermon, and I will explain just a little bit of my reasoning. Um, Just a few elements from the text itself. I think it's in order to give you some sense of the overall structure leading on from here. So if you glance at verse 45, that's the opening verse for the passage I'm intending to preach, you see the words faithful and wise appear, at least they appear as such in the ESV. Those same two words continue to be used in the next two parables. So, for instance, I'll allow you just a moment to glance through chapter 25, verses 2 through 9 in particular. And depending on how quickly you skim and how much you practice in school, you should be able to see the word wise appearing in contrast with foolish several times. It's the same exact word. Okay? And now here, just another moment, in the parable of the talents, so titled, so subtitled in the ESV translation, you have the word faithful appear in verses 21, verse 23, And the word faithful is contrasted with verse 26, you wicked and slothful servant, not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So you see these themes of faithful and wise being repeated in the next two parables. And one more thing to bear in mind, in verse 51 of our text, so that's the very last verse of our passage, and in fact the last sentence of it, it's probably a sentence that is mostly burned into your memory In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do note that it is repeated word for word in verse 30 of the next chapter, the very last sentence of it. I'm pointing out these specific elements to you just to try to prove this point. What Jesus is doing in this text is both introductory and summary of what he's about to unfold in greater detail in two more parables. So in that sense, I suggest to you that this passage, Lord willing, will serve as a As a fair one-time sermon for you, I do encourage you, of course, in weeks to come to be reading the whole of the Olivet Discourse to see how it all fits together. Um, What I'm going to do, I I hope this is a fairly simple approach. I'm going to do all the explanation of the meaning of the text first, 
and then I'll do all the application after that. So often we'll preach with applications scattered throughout, but I think the most sensible way for today, we'll do all the explanation up front. So bearing that in mind, let me proceed. This whole discourse, the whole Olivet Discourse, as we call it, chapters 24 and 25, is immediately given to Jesus' disciples, the disciples that would later be called apostles. As a matter of fact, in Mark's Gospel, he records the same um, discourse, the same series of teachings. It specifies that Peter, James, and John, and Andrew pulled Jesus aside and asked him a question privately, and all of this teaching comes in response to them in particular. But that is important to bear in mind. These instructions are in the first place for those disciples in particular. Of course, there'll be applications. I'll try to prove that to you here in due time. And what Jesus is instructing them on, as I've already indicated to you, is how can these disciples be ready for when Jesus comes again? Let me walk you briefly through the text then. In verse 45, Jesus begins saying, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? A couple of elements to point out to you. The master referred to here, surely you understand who that's speaking of, right? Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus, in the next two parables, in the parable of the ten virgins, first of all, he refers to himself as a bridegroom. And then he returns to this idea of himself being master in the parable of the talents. So that's who it's speaking of. The master, in this instance, is referring to Jesus Christ. His household refers to his church. And that way of speaking matches up perfectly with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15, where he says, in part, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and on he goes. This same idea, this same imagery, the same way of referring to the church you find surfaced, and if you're taking notes and interested, here's your cue. The church referred to as God's house is found in Ephesians 2.19, Hebrews 3.6, 1 Peter 4.17, but I won't linger on this because I think it's fairly straightforward. And the servants mentioned in verse 45 in the first place refers to Jesus' immediate disciples that he's addressing, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and of course, surely they are representative of all of the later to be known as apostles. And the basic point of verse 45, I think, again, is straightforward. If they are going to be ready for Jesus' second coming, they need to be found faithful feeding his house, right? That is, in short, the simple thing that Jesus is getting across. Now, when he speaks of feeding the house, this too, I believe you all understand. It reminds me, perhaps it reminds you, of what Jesus will later say to Peter, feed my sheep. And that famous passage where Jesus restores Peter after he had gone astray. And that element, by the way, may be significant to bear in mind. Feed my sheep, but feed them what? Doesn't it come down to this? Feed them the word. That which I have made known to you, that which is revealed to these apostles, make it known to the people because it's, as Jesus in his temptation earlier in this gospel, Jesus um, in fighting against the temptations of the devil, one thing he quoted from the Old Testament, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So feed them the word. But of course that means more particularly feed them the gospel the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not stated as such in this gospel account, but in John, Jesus calls himself the bread of life, as I'm sure many of you remember fondly and with thanksgiving. But that's what they're to be doing. Feed the people, the word of God particularly, feed them Jesus. Proclaim him to the people. This is how the household of God is nourished, and this is what they're to be doing when Jesus comes back. 
verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. If these disciples were to know the blessing of Jesus at his second coming, they needed to be found faithful. Now, I hope this is not painfully obvious, but I trust you understand that the point here is not that these disciples needed to 24-7, never stopping, never resting, never eating, never going up on a mountain to pray. They need to constantly be preaching, teaching in a formal sense. You understand that's not the point, correct? That's not the point. The issue is they need to be faithful in the discharge of this duty. Feeding God's house needed to be what characterized their lives. You understand? And there, after all, there may be significance along these lines when Jesus said in verse 45, give them their food at the proper time. As occasion called for, as the Lord Jesus required of them, give them their food. But that is the basic issue. In verse 47, Jesus, I couldn't think of a better word than disproportion. I'll explain myself in a second. But he says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This servant who is found faithful, not perfect, but faithful in feeding the household of God, this servant will know the blessing that Jesus says in being set over all his possessions. Even in consulting with your pastor, I couldn't think of a better word than disproportionate, even though he said it's probably not the greatest word in the world to use. But let me explain myself. This verse, it appears to me, is disproportionate in two senses. First, what reward does a servant deserve for just doing his job? Nothing. You may, in fact, recall, I believe it's in Luke's account where Jesus gave the teaching to the effect that if a servant has done all that was required of him, should he expect anything? Like, go ahead, now you should sit down, take off your shoes, fan yourself, join me at my table. He should have no expectation. A servant who just does his job is, as the phrase goes, a thankless servant. That's all you were expected to do. Just do your job. So this verse and the very fact that it promises blessing at all, a reward at all, is disproportionate in a sense. No reward is deserved. But of course, secondly, what I mean is this promise is disproportionate in what is actually promised as a reward. So let me read that again. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. What are the possessions of the master? What belongs to Jesus? I mean, on the one hand, that's an easy question to answer, right? The whole universe, easy enough. But can you grasp that? That's what I mean. This promise is, in a sense, right, in a sense, disproportionate to what these servants are called to do. All of the universe, all that there is, the whole world and everything in it, every star throughout all, the whole system, even that which man cannot fathom or see, And perhaps more importantly, the whole kingdom of heaven belongs to the master. And Jesus is saying, it's yours if you're found faithful. Not perfect, but faithful in the discharge of your duty. So that is part of what it means. You see, trying to unpack this application. What does it mean, starting in the first place, for these disciples to be found ready and spiritually awake for the second coming of Jesus? being found faithful to feed the household of God with Christ in particular. Well, now Jesus gives some negative instruction, and this I'm going to move a little faster. I want to put the whole second half of the passage before you at once. Verses 48 through 51, let me reread that for you. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed 
and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at, and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me boil it down to two negative instructions Jesus gives here. Two negative instructions. If these disciples are going to be found ready for when Jesus returns, then one, they need to be found not mistreating one another, right? Beating his fellow servants. Now, that might sound like a over-the-top warning in the sense that do, do these disciples, let me put you as a question, do these disciples really need to be warned against beating each other? I mean, really? Is that, a, is that a major concern? Have you encountered the disciples taking out clubs and whacking each other with it? What Do they really need to hear this warning? And my suggestion to you is that spiritually, absolutely. Are you familiar with the contours of Matthew? For instance, and I may only be highlighting certain things. You may draw Your mind may be drawn to others. But back in chapter 18, early in the chapter, Jesus comes upon his disciples arguing about who is the greatest. What is that? But then sort of trying to lord it over each other in a sense. And I'm, of course, borrowing phrases from other scriptures, but you understand what I'm getting at. They're arguing. That's what other gospels emphasize. But they ask Jesus, who's the greatest? What kind of question is that? So Jesus rebukes them in that chapter, recall, and he says you need to turn and become like little children. Humble yourself. And there's some instruction that expands upon that reality. I'll leave that for now. The next chapter, chapter 19, the disciples are found, if you will, mistreating the children and the parents of the children. Do you remember this? The parents are trying to bring children to Jesus and the disciples are found rebuking the people. That's actually what the text says. They're rebuking them, mistreating the little ones, the very ones they were supposed to become like in a spiritual sense. And then after all of that, in chapter 20, and notice these are all back to back, in chapter 20, we're told that James and John through their mother, mind you, make a request of Jesus, hey, we want to be at your right and left hand. Now, we may scratch our heads a little bit and wonder what exactly they're getting at. Well, the other disciples knew because their response was to be indignant. They're still trying to one-up each other, to use a modern-day phrase. The point I'm getting at, and I think you understand, is these disciples do need to be warned against mistreating each other. Now, maybe the problem will not be a literal physical beating of one another, but you understand Jesus is speaking metaphorically the whole way through. These disciples are being warned because they need to be. If you want to be ready for when Jesus returns, do not be found mistreating one another. And then the second negative instruction Jesus gives is in the last phrase of verse 49. I draw this out there to not be found eating and drinking with drunkards. As far as I'm concerned, this phrase needs a little bit of careful thinking, doesn't it? In chapter 9 of Matthew, in any case, we're told that Jesus reclined at table with tax collectors and sinners. Of course, it doesn't mention drunkards in particular, but that's part of what commends Jesus to us, isn't it? The very fact that he would go to such notorious sinners that other morally upright people would tip their noses up against. Jesus would go to them. He would minister to them. But bear this in mind, in this metaphorical sense, he never drank with them. 
He, as he ministered in the midst of this world filled with sin and its filth, Jesus always maintained his own purity. He would call them to repentance and not join them in their sin. You see, that's what I think we're to understand. Certainly it is the case, isn't it? That Jesus is not telling his disciples, make sure you absolutely avoid any sinner. Such were some of them anyway. That's not the case. It's not have nothing to do with them. Insulate yourself from the world. No, rather... As you minister to them, keep yourself unstained by the things of this world. As a matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, what Pastor Nathan addressed in Bible study has very much something to do with this, doesn't it? Sort of looking at Chase and Nicole here. Remember, that text in the Psalm says, don't find your company with them. Of course you're in the midst of them. In fact, you're supposed to be in one sense to bring the word of Christ to them, but don't find your company with them. Such were some of you. And so I think that's the point. So, to summarize, Jesus is warning his disciples, if they are found mistreating one another, if they are found partaking in the sins of the world around them, in that sense, drinking with drunkards, and by extension, if they are found not feeding the household of Christ, then they can expect judgment. Being cut in pieces, being put with the hypocrites, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. These, of course, are metaphorical descriptions of hell. If they are not found faithful in these ways, they can expect hell for it. That's part of what it means for these disciples to be ready. Ready for when Jesus comes, which will come immediately. At a time that no one expects, and it will happen all of a sudden. And will be the end. So that's my attempt to explain it to you. And I think right on the surface of it, on the spiritually minded, of course, we'll pick up the fact that there are many clear applications, aren't there? Uh, how are we going to be ready? That's, that's really the task of my preaching today. This is the burden of it. I want you and myself, for that matter, to understand more. What does it mean for us to be ready for when Christ returns? And I think some things are obvious, probably... Other things are less obvious. Let me work in the reverse. This is how it worked in my mind in any case. So let me work backwards from what I just explained. If you want to be ready for Christ's return, then first of all, you cannot be found eating and drinking with drunkards in the sense I've just explained. So in this way, Psalm 141 verse 4 applies to all of us. And you're welcome to turn there. But I will be brief with this. When Psalm 141, verse 4, remember, the psalmist says, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. It's related to the much more familiar text, Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There are warnings that attend to that. Verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. And verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We cannot in that sense, I think you understand, we cannot in that sense find our company with the sinners or to use the language Jesus brings forth in the parable, uh, we are to not be drinking with drunkards. So as you live in this world, 
Seek to keep yourself unstained. The words that Paul spoke to Timothy apply to all of us. Keep yourself unstained. Really what it amounts to in short. Walk in repentance. Continue to confess your sins and continually turn to Jesus over and over and over again. But I move quickly and I'll explain why here shortly. Second application for you, working backwards still. If we're going to be ready for the second coming of Jesus, then secondly, we cannot be found mistreating one another. Yes, don't beat each other, but what I've explained is really what I'm getting at, right? Think about it this way. How often, and I'm not really looking for a statistical answer, but how often do especially the New Testament letters addressed to churches, how often do they address issues about mistreating one another? So, for example, maybe these things will ring a bell for you. We're told in the scriptures, don't bite and devour one another. Of course, that's referring in particular to your words. Um, Don't gossip about each other. Don't slander one another. How many times are we warned about that? We're told not to lie to one another. Instead, we're to speak the truth in love. We're told and warned against insisting on our own way and viewing ourselves more highly than others. Instead, we're told to submit to one another. Uh, We're told to not grieve one another. Of course, that text was speaking particularly towards leaders, but it applies to all of our relationships with one another. But don't grieve one another. In Matthew's gospel, and it's, of course, brought forth elsewhere, when we sin against one another... We are to seek to reconcile with our brethren. Why are we told in so many times, in so many ways, about these types of issues? It's because it's a problem, isn't it? And we need to have that have our eyes opened to it, evidently. Otherwise, why would it need to be brought forth so frequently? If we're going to be found ready for when Jesus Christ comes again, then we need to heed the instructions of Scripture. Don't be found mistreating one another in these ways. I move on. Now you may be wondering, why am I addressing all these things so quickly? Because truth of the matter is, those two issues I've just touched upon could be expanded at great length. In fact, that's what the New Testament does. The reason I am moving so quickly is because I really want to harp on this one, this last application I bring to you. I think it's the least obvious, but perhaps one of the most important things for you to hear. Thirdly, my application for you is that if we are going to be found ready for when Jesus comes again, then all of us need to be found faithful in nourishing the household of Christ. I'll basically do the same thing I just did now on a microcosm level. Let me move from the more obvious to the less obvious in trying to unpack this. Surely you understand that elders today share this same responsibility as these disciples who are receiving these instructions immediately, right? You may recall this. Peter, in 1 Peter 5.1, addressed the elders of the church in this way. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So we don't have the apostolic office anymore. That work has ceased. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets of the foundation were built upon them. Nevertheless, there's an overlap of what the apostles did and what the elders today are expected to do. So when I say these things, I'm addressing myself. I'm addressing your pastor, who is not present, but address all like him, Edgar. I'm picking on you as well. If we are going to be found ready for when Jesus returns, 
then you and I need to be found faithful in the discharge of this duty. We are placed in Christ's household and congregations as he's divided according to his wisdom. You and I need to be faithful in feeding the households respectively that we are in. Feed them with the word of God. Feed them with the gospel and feed them particularly with Jesus, both in our words and in our example. Now, as I say these things, I publicly acknowledge that I'm very thankful from what I understand that this session is very diligent to try to feed this flock. And, of course, some of the formal ways are the most obvious that stand out to me. They offer to you the ministry of the word, morning and evening worship. They have Sunday school and Bible study. Praise God for these things. But may God help us all to be faithful. Let me um, move, though, to another particular application of this. Deacons. So, Mike, picking on you now briefly. On the one hand, deacons are responsible to uphold and support the ministry of the elders as they seek to feed the household of God, right? Or is that too many qualifying portions to that sentence? Deacons are on the one hand responsible to uphold the ministry of the elders as they seek to nourish the household of God. And of course, I've, even in the couple times I've been here, I've seen Mike doing this, trying to set things up, trying to relieve that load of these other things so that the elders can concentrate on feeding the household of God. So praise God for that. On the other hand, Deacons are also responsible, though in a way that differs from the elders, they are also responsible to directly nourish the household of God. So here's just a couple of examples. I do not mean to be exhaustive. As deacons minister to physical needs of the people, they are to feed the people with Christ, even still. They are to speak a word of encouragement as occasion permits. They are to bring forth a verse that pertains to a particular suffering that the saints have. They are to offer a sincere prayer in the name of Jesus, according to the word, things along these lines. But now I'm really getting to the main thing. Really what I'm trying to drive at, what I think um, requires the most, or is, is most pressing on my heart is what I'm saying. This application is for everyone in the church. So I'll say it again. All of us are responsible to nourish the household of Christ. All of us are. If we are going to be found ready when Jesus Christ returns, then we all have a part to play in it. We're not apostles, we're not elders, we're not all deacons, but all of us have this responsibility. Let me prove that these instructions are for us all by taking it to Mark's account briefly, Mark 13. I encourage you to turn there. Um, Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. This is Mark's recording of the Olivet Discourse. And I think picking up in verse 32 will be sufficient for my purposes. So Mark 13, verses 32 through 37, you'll recognize much the same things. Jesus is speaking, says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And the note, verse 37, and what I say to you, to his disciples, I say to all, stay awake. To try to prove to you 
the instructions Jesus gives, while they are specifically for the disciples, as I mentioned at the beginning, they are in a sense for us all. And that that includes this particular instruction. Blessed is that servant who in the master will find so doing when he returns. What I say to you, I say to all. And so in that way, all of us have a responsibility to strive to see that this household, so for you who are members of this church, Grace Presbyterian Duluth, or your home churches for that matter, you all are responsible to see that this household is nourished with the word, with the gospel, and with Christ. Well, how does that work, right? And I frame it all like this so that you can hear now these cross-references I take you to in that light. So first, I would like you to turn to Hebrews 10 now. I really do encourage you because um, this has significant bearing on the application I'm bringing. Hebrews chapter 10. If you need help finding it, Hebrews is towards the end of the New Testament. Honestly, the easiest way to find it um, is to go to Revelation, just flip backwards. Hebrews is a fairly large book. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. We just read this responsively, and that was designed so that we would be familiar with it by this point. And the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And note these verses in particular. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, even that idea of the day coming is present in this text. It's precisely as we see the day drawing near, as Jesus is revealing in the Olivet Discourse, precisely because of that, We are to do certain things. So here, what I'm trying to do is unpack a little bit of what does it mean for all of us to take part in nourishing the household of Christ? Well, it means something like this. How can I stir up my brothers and sisters whom I will see this Lord's Day or on other occasions? How can I stir them up to love? And I bear that responsibility. All of us do. We all share this responsibility. How can I Stir up my brothers and sisters in love. Notice that all of these instructions, by the way, in verse 24, begin with, let us consider. You're going to have to actually think about it. It's going to have to actually be on your mind throughout the week as you look forward to the Lord's Day in particular. How can I build them up, stir them up to love? Well, doesn't it start with these kinds of things, which is why I began reading back in 19, Doesn't it start with us all holding fast to the hope that we have in Christ ourselves? Doesn't our ability to stir our brethren up in love, love for God and love for neighbor, doesn't it start with us relishing the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord? Doesn't it start with us drawing near to God through Christ, and not just once a week, but daily in communion with him? Doesn't our ability to nourish our brethren in this way, start with us being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with us being washed with pure water which comes from Christ. Doesn't it start there? 
having this personal communion and assurance from the Lord? Doesn't our ability to nourish each other through encouragement, doesn't it start with us holding fast to the hope that we have in Jesus? So along those lines, he gave you some particular instruction. Be in the word daily and think and pray specifically as you draw near to the Lord's day. And I've picked some of this up from Pastor Nathan's emails. He exhorts you to this. Pray for each other and pray in particular, Lord, equip me with your hope, with with the hope I have in Christ, with your grace to me, that I might be able to stir my brethren up to love. Another question we should be asking if we are going to submit to the word of God, how can I stir up my brethren to good works? How can I play my part to encourage them, or if you will, to nourish them and their lives of obedience to the commandments of God? We all have a role to play in it. Once more, and in God's good providence, it just makes me smile. This relates to Bible study, I think. That we are to be in the word, like Psalm 1 would say, we're to set an example, and we are to strive to be that righteous man that at the proper time, with humility and love, brings the rebuke that is so nourishing and healing to the soul. Don't miss the straightforward statement that the Hebrew writer brings as well. In verse 25, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. You can't properly nourish your brethren in these ways if you're not actually together. So unless we are providentially hindered, is to be one of our greatest priorities to be there, but not just to take, but to give. Because after all, we're all servants in the household of Christ. And then in verse 25, encourage one another. Encourage one another with what? Keep pointing back to Jesus. Keep speaking of him to one another. Um, let me just include two more passages here briefly. Ephesians chapter 5. So you're flipping backwards in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. And perhaps my reason for selecting this will be more apparent when I include the immediately following text. So hear this, Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul says, Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice that addressing one another. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I intend that to be paired with the Colossians parallel passage, Colossians 3. In verse 16, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it right now. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. I think that's sufficient for my purposes. How do we nourish each other? How do we teach each other? How do we feed each other with Christ? Well, these are some of the things that we do. You sing. 
And notice it says, well, maybe happily, it does not include sing with perfect pitch. (laughs) Sing filled with the Spirit. Sing making melody in the heart. But I'll put it to you in plain terms, I think. Sing with gusto the profound truths that you have. I hope it has all been your experience and even a regular experience of being in a congregation that almost shakes the roof with their singing as they cry out with thanksgiving to God. These are the glories that we have to rejoice in. And I hope it's been your experience. You've been nourished just by being there. Do your part. Sing filled with the Spirit. Sing with the heart that overflows with the melody. And that melody comes as you are warmed by the love of Christ for you. How else do we nourish one another? You teach and admonish each other. And don't overthink it. Of course, that has some formal ways, some formal ways that teaching and admonishing is done. But maybe it's something as simple as this. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing well because I'm so thankful for this particular passage that the Lord impressed upon my heart this week. Maybe it's just one verse. All week long, but the Lord enabled you to to lay hold of it by faith. Or someone asks you how you're doing. Well, you know, this week has been difficult, and yet I'm thankful that the Lord has sustained me. Maybe someone asks you how you're doing. I'm thankful for all of my trials, because I know that the Lord is testing me and proving the genuineness of my faith. Isn't that a teaching of sorts? Isn't it a teaching of sorts to talk after the service and say, hey, I was really thankful of this statement that Pastor Nathan made. It really burned on my heart. That's a teaching of sorts. To when we say to each other, I've been so convicted of this particular sin in my life and I praise God for it, that he opened my eyes to see. That's a teaching and admonishing of sorts. It nourishes the household of God, is what I'm getting at. Don't overthink it. You need to consider these things. How do I stir them up? But it comes from a heart of genuine fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. How else do we nourish one another? Both of these texts highlighted this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. I think it makes sense in the reverse. Um, you've all been around people that are just negative and always grumbling and complaining. And what is the effect it has upon you? It sucks the life out of you. The opposite is true. To be around someone who's positively glowing with gratitude to the Lord, even in their trials, there is something positively nourishing about being around that saint. You're to strive to be that way. These are just a few examples of what it means. Nourish the household of Christ. And so, then you have some understanding when I ask you the question. Notice I didn't pick all of you by name, but I started with names because I want you to know I'm really talking to you. I pray for you. Are you ready for when Jesus comes? If he were to come today, what will he find you doing? We're to walk in repentance, but positively we're to be striving to see that the household of faith, that he has so sovereignly and wisely and lovingly placed us in to see that they are nourished. What will he find you doing when he comes again? Strive to be faithful. Strive to see that the household is nourished. 
I want to give you a couple of encouragements as I close. Um, I suspect that for some of you, you feel like you really don't have a whole lot to offer but a few breadcrumbs. Let me remind you of something Jesus did. There was an instance, I think it was in the wilderness, I think he did this more than once, where there are these hungry people gathered. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you feed them. And they were only able to get, what, a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. And what happened as they handed that back to Jesus, Jesus blessed it, broke it, and had them distribute it, and all of the people were nourished and fed. I want you to consider that as an encouragement along the lines of the exhortation I'm giving to you. You may not feel like you have much. I don't either. All I have, I feel like all I have is breadcrumbs to offer. And yet in God's economy, the Lord Jesus, who loves his people, looks with pity and compassion upon them, and he uses us, Christian, he uses you to see that his people are satisfied in him. It is his economy to work through his people. Praise God. No, we are not sufficient for these things. But the Lord does this work. And uh, let me also encourage you with this. Bear in mind that the reward extended to us is totally disproportionate. We just strive to be faithful with what little we think we have. We just strive to be faithful. And you know what the reward is promised to you? It totally exceeds all that you could possibly ask or imagine. Um, And by the way, don't forget that among those blessings, he's giving himself right now. In this Olivet Discourse, he calls his people to live like servants, feeding the house, while he himself is giving himself as the ransom for many. Soon in Matthew, just the next chapter or so, Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper and say, here is my body. He feeds his people, and we are satisfied in him. So don't forget those things, that the reward he promises to the servant who simply seeks as he bumbles along to be faithful, the reward is totally disproportionate, and he is good. The Lord is the one who sees to it that his people are fed and nourished. Remember, he gave himself for this very purpose. So I I pray that you are encouraged as you see the day drawing near, and may the Lord help us to strive to be ready. With that, I ask if you'd please pray with me.